all and welcome to the Sports Map Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Kane. For those who haven't joined us before, this is the podcast where we're talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation, and return to performance. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to be chatting about T-junction injuries of the biceps femoris. And this is obviously an injury that doesn't have a whole lot of literature out there and uh, not not a whole lot of scope of knowledge around how best to manage these injuries. And we're going to be chatting to Fergal Kieran, who's a PhD candidate looking at concepts of rehabilitation of hamstring strain injuries and risk factors and neuromuscular responses of hamstring injuries in professional rugby union. He's also the rehabilitation physiotherapist at Linster Rugby. I guess the way this podcast came about was Fiegel actually wrote a blog post for us on T-junction injuries, which is still up at the Sportsmap website. And it actually received a lot of interest and a lot of different physiotherapists across the world have actually reached out to Fergal and asked his opinion on different things. Uh, and it wasn't until recently I was chatting with the godfather of sports physio in Australia and Craig Purdom who referenced that article saying it's one of the better pieces he's seen speaking to T-junction injury management and rehabilitation. So if Craig Purdom says it's good and he was interested in reading it and it also further spoken to um, Fergal about this, I thought, well, we better just go straight to the source and chat more around these injuries with Fergal himself. It was a really interesting chat and he's got a great take on and clearly a great knowledge on hamstring injuries. So I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Before we start talking T-junction injuries of the biceps femoris, there's been some recent developments at the sports map and changes in our course dates due to COVID-19. However, things are looking really set and we're really excited for a bumper 2022 where we're heading to Sydney at the end of January for the Athletic Groin Pain Symposium where we've only got, I think there's less than six places remaining at the time of this recording. Uh, and then a week later, we're in the Gold Coast for the upper limb rehabilitation in sport, which has now also got less than 10 places available. So both of those courses will sell out so if you're keen you will need to jump on very quickly and we are also building for our biggest conference yet uh, that we're super excited about it's the football sports injury conference and that's coming to melbourne on the 12th and 13th of march 2022 that'll be held at the new conference facilities of the essendon football club we've got a huge lineup of speakers that will give us some of their their favorite intakes and experiences within sport and injuries and the list is phenomenal from ebony rio to julian feller jill cook Edna King, Craig Purden himself, Andrew Wallace, Martin Wallen, Sue Mays, Brooke Patterson, Lachlan Penfold, Sarah Warby, Tim McGrath, Tanya Pizzari, the list goes on. Certainly not one to be missed. It'll be a really great opportunity to network and chat and have some fun and be some music at the end of day one and, and a few drinks. So a great opportunity to converse with both speakers and um, other physios and health clinicians alike. So really looking forward to that course. It's going to be uh, a fantastic opportunity to get back to some great face-to-face learning in Melbourne. So can't wait. And now I hope you guys enjoy this chat with Fergal. Welcome, Fergal, to the podcast. Cool. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. Now, mate, before we jump in and and talk about all things hamstring and T-junction injuries, um, tell us a little bit about what you're currently doing now professionally and where your interests lie. I'm working at Leinster Rugby here in Dublin. I'm a rehab physio. I've been here for for quite a while now. This is my eighth season, five of which I've been with the senior side. So, um, it's a Lancers a pro rugby side here in Dublin. The team is pretty successful. We've good, really good backroom uh, staff and a very performance team that I'm really lucky to work alongside. And um, our playing group are, are really clever and dedicated. So it's a, a great side to be part of. 
Um, what the actual role itself means, I, I work really across all short, medium and long-term rehab, as well as I like, obviously do the day-to-day supporting the fit guys and helping prep them for, for playing. Before I was at Leinster then, I had a couple of years um, couple of years in Scottish football, working in the SPL over there and I've worked a lot around the League of Ireland, which is the domestic league here as well in soccer. Um, but in addition, the other thing I've got going on is I'm doing a PhD, so I'm lucky that I'm facilitated by Leinster to do a, an embedded PhD within within Leinster Rugby and within UCD, where I, I can carry out research um, within our environment. So we're, we've carried out some nice work on the mechanism of hamstring injuries, which we're hoping to have published pretty soon. But we've really evolved the idea of what the PhD was meant to be around, because originally it was meant to be pretty broad around things like fascia length and recovery from neuromuscular recovery from hamstring injury. But really, in terms of what my key interests are, it kind of t- ties nicely into the PhD because at the time, the um, the British Athletic Muscle Injury Classification classification was coming out, and our understanding of you know two Cs and three Cs was starting to expand. And I was having some challenging intramuscular tendon and free tendon injuries that I was working through at Leinster at the time, uh, getting some pretty mixed results on those. So the challenge really for me for kind of the next stage of what I wanted to do in my, my own rehab practices was to just try and get a little bit more specific on how I manage the subtypes of hamstring injuries and all muscle injuries. And so the idea was how could I evolve that from from looking at our own, how could I inter- pivot to PhD maybe a little bit to to give consideration to that and a kind of evolve practice and understanding of timeframes and return to play and you know exercise selection and frameworks and expectations around the different types of injuries so that is really how my interest started in that and it ended up becoming a pivotal part of, of the research I'm doing outside of Leinster and the, the clinical practice so uh, then ultimately that allows me to apply those principles to the injury prevention and, and some of our rehab practices at work between the mechanistic stuff the fascia length work the recovery work and the, the understanding of the subtypes. As I sort of mentioned um, prior to our chat there, one of the key aspects that sort of really drove me to come and have a chat with you on this podcast, you, you did a fantastic blog piece uh, on our website on T-junction injuries uh, and it's been sort of lots of positive feedback since. To kick us off and talk around those injuries specifically, what prompted you to see at to one uh, right on this injury as a T-junction and what prompted your interest in these injuries? Specifically, why I chose to prep the blog was I wanted to try and open up a conversation because, as you mentioned, there's not a lot out there. There's probably only two real articles when you specifically look up T-junctions that are going to come up and I'll probably end up talking a little bit about those again and again. And so I wanted to just try and piece together what was there, take the, take my understanding of distal hamstring anatomy and physiology and what we could take from from our understanding of those and put that together into a little bit of a... a blog post and a rehab kind of piece and that way people might come we can try and get a better understanding of it by starting conversation i was going to hope people might come then contact me to have a conversation and that's what really has happened because there's not a lot comes up when you search t-junction so it's ended up allowing me to lean on a lot of other people and um, primarily actually australian guys have been looking like likes of um, benjamin shipper to collingwood i've spoken to him and brenton eggleston who's somebody i speak to a bit at um at melbourne their guys have leaned on a little bit because I think Australia's probably been a little bit ahead in, in recognising this this type of injury. Um, that was kind of my idea was just to, to to send out a flare and see what was out there by by putting out what little what what my understanding of it really was. Beyond that, really, I guess I was aware of the the term T junction and I was aware that this hamstring injuries were were pretty challenging really over the past few years, but not potentially as specifically as we should have been 
and uh, recognising that probably our results hadn't been as good on the distal hamstring injuries, but still homogenising them into a, a general hamstring uh, management strategy and not considering them as a different clinical entity. And it ended up that probably while while I was getting these injuries, I wasn't recognising them and then finding I was, again, probably the outcomes weren't where they should have been. And there's one case comes to mind of, of a player who who scanned and we, we call it a grade 1A and probably probably four months later we were on our third recurrence of it and it's only now in retrospect we look back and go okay we're actually managing distal um distal mtj t-junction type injuries and that player and again if we could have our time again we, we would probably take a, a different time frame and a different loading strategy and then once we kind of got that once we got that understanding of of t-junction recognize that it's a, diff, a pretty different clinical entity and started realizing they were everywhere and then starting to I think there's probably been a proliferation in the number of distal hamstring injuries in the last couple of years for whatever reason and we can speculate on that too but started seeing a lot more of them and then as part of an imaging study that we're working on at the moment in what we piloted so far we've gone back over the um, hamstring strain injuries we've had in recent years and started to recognize okay we actually some of the ones that were the pretty much universally went on to recur were T-junction injuries that we just hadn't hadn't seen. There's there's probably I guess eight to ten cases that um that you would manage differently you could have done again and maybe the recurrence rate is probably eighty percent on eighty percent on those. So really it's the recognition of a problem and then um and, and how challenging that how challenging that is that prompted the the interest in it. And uh, some an injury that we do see a lot of and I think it's in order to get the best results from from them you need to uh, have a pretty good framework so that was why i why i decided to go down the road trying to put some stuff together on it can you i guess summarize and tell us what exactly is a t-junction injury uh, and why do we need to be aware of these injuries more or on how are they different to standard hamstring injuries yeah so t-junction in the simple and broadest terms it's a injury to the distal mtj or muscular tendons junction of the biceps so that's our understanding of the location. It they were, as far as I can tell, they were first described um, by Entwistle and Dave Connolly, the, um, the Olympic Park study from Sydney, where they described they described it as a, a different type of hamstring injury. And they said they were the first to recognise it, uh, or the first to, to discuss it. They had, what what the paper basically done was they had they reviewed two thousand hamstring strains um, at their institution and of those two thousand one hundred were uh, distal MTJ injuries. Uh, the T junction itself, it's effectively it's the, the condensation or where the uh, where the long and the short head join to become a uh, where they taper together to become a characteristic T. So it looks like a T on the MRI and that's where it takes its name from. Uh, you obviously have the long head coming vertically from the ischial tuberosity and the short head has a kind of more more oblique attachment uh, from the distal half of the femur and they join in this distal mtj and um, they're really you ask what's important what's important to be aware of really what defines it is the the massive recurrence rates as best i can probably tell it's the the highest recurrence rates of any muscle injury bar none uh, so Really, it's, it's pretty easy to remember the numbers. About half of them are likely to recur, according to the from the findings of the the Entwistle and Dave Connell study. Your grade one injuries, about a third of those will recur, and then it's two thirds of the grade twos and threes are likely to recur. So, if you think about it, and you've 
two injuries, one even at a grade even at a grade one level, um, one of them is likely to recur, and one of them is not. So, regardless of how you manage, you're, you're up against it. So, it indicates we need to be pretty bespoke and pretty thoughtful um, and cogent in how we're going to manage these. Uh, that then they, they put, put they put that out in 2017, and shortly after, uh, Farah Sadad's group put out a paper from the UK, and they theirs was a surgical paper, but they described how their previous what they had seen previously from a conservative group, and again, I think it was 50 percent ish uh, went on to recur from conservatively managed um, T junction distal MTJ injuries. So they suggested a surgical approach off the back of that. So so critically, the difference is we've just got this this monstrous recurrence rate that's the very highest end of, of what's what we see for any type of any type of hamstring strain and any type of muscle injury probably what what we need to be aware of probably around the the muscle itself and why that why that is it's probably speculation to an extent and I, I tried to make that point in the blog post that a, a lot of what like that's probably as far as we are in terms of the facts the, the, probably as far as we know in terms of facts are that this is really high recurrence rates and it does well from surgery and that's probably it and um, from from there you can just take you can lean into what you know from other areas and kind of make some assumptions and kind of try and derive some findings and and come up with come up with some logic so why why this is a different area it's it's probably there's some complexity in the anatomy and that's where some people don't really understand what the T-junction is, but it's the, it's the fact we've got the vertical long head and it's just that slightly different vector of the short head coming in prob- probably makes it vulnerable to shear and, and asynchronicity or just challenges in how, in how the muscle is going to be recruited. You've also got, there's a, a dual innervation, so the tibial branch of the sciatic nerve at the long head and the perineal branch at the, for the short head. And what likely impact is that going to have on again on, on these two components of the muscle trying to work, um, trying to work uh, in tandem? So ultimately, we we need to probably manage these a little bit differently. And what I've probably my favourite paper, the one I lean on the most, is the Ben McDonald paper, um, that kind of applies the principles of the BAMIC and how applies how understanding injury location should affect how you how you load and how you progress an injury and what's fascinating about that is they then followed up from a really logical rehab paper they then backed it up then a year later by, by showing they dropped their injury rates from 60 plus percent for their c type injuries down to two three percent and by applying some applying the principles that they had they had um, produced so it shows that we can um if we're aware of these injuries, we can get really good results, and uh, that's probably the most important thing we can recognise. the The last kind of point, really, as well, that we can take from Haddad's Haddad's work and from Entwistle as well, is that uh, most of these also seem to recur. Um, sorry, uh, yeah, recur early, and um, you can see that in uh, most of them seem to occur in the first two months. And Aston Villa put out a, a reasonably small paper in the last few months, but the lead author was Shamji, uh, BMJ Open. And of their four, inju- four injuries over the time period that broke down during rehab, basically, and of those four injuries, three of them were uh, distal hamstring injuries. So it seems like, for whatever reason, relative to T-junction, the first couple of months are, are where you go wrong. And um, so we need to kind of give consideration to that. That seems to be something that's different about the distal hamstring. Is when it needs it's vulnerable early. Can 
these type of injuries be related to a certain type of type of mechanism of injury? And then further on from that, what I guess are there any telltale signs of a T junction injury on our assessment? So yeah, in, in, in consideration of the mechanisms, one of the things we looked at in the PhD and um, paper was we looked at over a period of period of four seasons, we were able to find videos of seventeen hamstring strain injuries, and we were able to pick some factors that were so that some common biomechanical positions that were associated with hamstring injury. Typically, what we found this across all hamstring injuries was trunk flexion, hip flexion, knee extension, trunk rotation. And that is a pattern that we've seen again and again. But specific to the T-junction, it definitely seems that the rotational component is what's key. Uh, rotation is a key part of hamstring injury to the best of, as I can, the best of I can tell. It seems that overstride and rotation is where hamstring injuries occur in most running type injuries. And we also see it in the contact injuries again, in particularly in, in our sport of rugby, we see it in the rook type injuries, but in other sports, stooping for a ball in, in the likes of an AFL or Gaelic sports, we'll see it as well. But it's definitely it's definitely a big component of the T-junction area injuries. You can see it, whether it's, whether it's reaching for an opponent, uh, winding up for a pass or in swing phase, Putting it together with a with a whip of the with a whip of the trunk, ipsilateral rotation, and um, while striding, it seems that that's where we seem to get them, uh, and that's going to have implications for how we how we rehabilitate and what our what our understanding of of what exercise and what outcome measures are going to look like. And unfortunately, that's probably as far as it goes in terms of what should make us suspicious of a T junction injury. Well, that and the location at which they they feel their their symptoms. Because probably beginning to realise it's more more and more difficult and less and less clear to how to match our clinical diagnosis with what you're likely to see on imaging. And that seems to be the same with the intramuscular tendon injuries, where there are no real obvious clinical signs to link it. I think there's probably a beautiful prospective paper, and it's something I'd love to do in the future, of where we document clinical findings and match, their, match them with the injury location on MRI and help I'll come a little bit closer because so far all that we can tell for the, the C-type injuries is a little restriction in uh, straight leg raises is, is probably something to expect to see. And on these distal injuries, the only thing you can really relate it to is the pain and the location they feel, the pain and tenderness to that being at the distal MTJ where the tendon starts to flesh out. If, they, if their injury is in that region and probably matched again with some rotation with a rotational mechanism and probably with with or maybe not necessarily always with a high degree of force of some kind we've been more or less suspicious of a, of a t-junction injury uh, the problems really we have there is that the, the proximal mtj continues to be quite distal too so you're not always spot on and sometimes you get these wrong but you probably should be suspicious of all distal hamstring strain injuries um, it's been said that you can find gapping between the heads on contraction, uh, which can be a little bit difficult if you don't know exactly where you're looking for and exactly what you're looking for. It, and it's probably better evaluated on ultrasound. There's probably one case where I've been certain that I could say, um, yeah, that's that's certainly, there's certainly gapping between the heads there. And I know my colleague, Dr. Flanagan, who works with us at Leinster and who takes an interest in these injuries with me as well. He, I know he's confident he can, he can, determine gapping of the of the t-junction uh, you probably need to be seeing a few of these to, to develop that competency the real challenge that we have is if we're gonna if i'm saying we're gonna we should be suspicious that all distal hamstring strains are severe 
is that the other thing we know about these injuries is probably what defines them is they tend to be low low grade symptoms and they don't follow our usual assessment principles which would be more severe symptoms more severe injury doesn't really play out that way and why that is i could only speculate with one is our traditional their typical testing battery is it too uniplanar to fully stress the stress the injury um, or are they just not appropriate for it is there something to do with the sensory supply that are that the the pain is not particularly severe early on and end whistle says that in their experience the symptoms tend to settle pretty quickly three to four weeks but in my experience and in speaking to to other guys it tends to be even quicker than that they can be symptom free in a week or two weeks and you get lowered into this sense of false security and progress too quickly through the the phases so you've now got this injury that that by death or by is characteristically quick to um to settle and characteristically quick to break down you end up in this um in this dichotomy this challenging area of where of, of that's probably why these recurrences occur so frequently um and i think it's a real issue because you've got an elite population and you can mri all these injuries and, and that's fine but i don't know what the suggestion would be for sub elite if i'm saying that all all distal hamstring injuries should be treated with caution because we can't diagnose them clinically and if people don't have access to mri how exactly this we managed is a really difficult thing um, so it's a uh, really you've got to lean on you've got to lean on your imaging support to to get the best uh, to, to best support in your diagnosis and to give you the best chance of making the most appropriate timeline. You've sort of talked to reasons about why the high recurrence rate is, but I want to touch back on the ultrasound that you mentioned there around imaging. We know the benefit of MR um, with our hamstrings and how important that will be. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more on what we're looking at with the hamstring, uh, with the ultrasound and um, can that maybe be used uh, as a guide for healing to then guide our management? It's a real challenge because we do need imaging to confirm but we're probably not even still fully there in terms of the MRI grading scales and, and really applying MRI and taking the most from that to it. Because even looking at the papers on it, Pollock, um, the end whistle paper, they suggested that the BAMIC wasn't appropriate to be used. You couldn't go ABC, just use traditional one, two, three. Whereas Haddad did use it, but then the things that are going to define probably the management of it might be the might be what they look like under ultrasound, whether they have that gapping, whether they have shearing on contraction. So there certainly is a role for in real-time ultrasound and functional ultrasound that's obviously not been discussed in at all um, so far in the literature. So really it's only opinion and, and again, something that the number of cases of experience with this I have is not so much that I would claim this to be to be expert opinion or or, or expert proven fully yet but in my experience and in the experience of others and you mentioned Craig Purdom had this conversation with, with him very recently there is it seems on seems on ultrasound you can see shearing and asynchronous contraction and again I'm lucky that I work with Dr Flanagan who's skilled and who's, who's helpful in this and that's probably helpful in characterizing our injuries as stable or unstable and that feeds into our management in some way the ways that this might feed in is it may determine the point it may it may send you towards surgical and i can talk about surgical and there's there's uh, i think culturally there's different 
approaches to some countries seem like the, a lot of these go for surgery and some countries don't but it the results from surgery are quite good and uh, whether if they have this uh, unstable type of, of t-junction injury then that may be the indicator to progress down that route or conversely it may suggest it's a either a mild non-severe type of t-junction injury or if indeed there is shearing you may choose to use the use the point at which you see that become more stable you may choose to use that point as the point you're going to become less conservative progress to the higher speed running more you know dynamic loading so there is a role for that and that's definitely to be expanded upon that's how you would use it uh, clinically yeah and, and on surgery obviously when they are unstable injuries that's where they clearly looking at where the surgery might be, a, be an approach um what about you know you mentioned how the low level grade one injuries then 50 percent recurrence and and then, you know, a higher rate again when they sort of re-injure at a higher grade. Is there ever any merit in just doing, uh, I know the surgical procedure is a little bit controversial around what exactly we are repairing in those really low-level injuries, but is there discussion around doing surgery that early for a grade one injury, considering it might be a six, eight-week injury and the surgery will probably still be a six or eight-week injury and hopefully the current rates are, are reduced from that? Yeah, so Haddad's paper, they... They had a mix of they had surgeries on were a mix of three Bs and three Cs, and those guys came back in twelve weeks plus or minus three, and um, so guys come back pretty quick from the surgery. If we're going to say that's let's say your interquartile range takes it to nine to fifteen weeks, which isn't bad, um, but that's two two and five months if you're confident you can do it in nine weeks ish, and obviously guys are coming back even quicker than that on the other end of the range then then it's not a bad option because if you're going to miss four weeks and possibly have a likelihood of recurrence, then then a nine, 10 week, you know, guaranteed, we'll say, return is not a bad option. But the challenge you have is that we've only got one paper so far that that discusses that, the, and that was a UK paper from a, from a single a single surgeon. We don't have, we don't have more cases to lean on on that. So, really what's going to guide you on your decision making on that is what's what's your likely timeline how quick do you think you're likely to do it based on on surgery and and then again is is it indicated on that again we don't have you're balancing this you're trying to get this balance between this huge early recurrence rate and again the the approach i would use would be to kind of consider consider the anatomical diagnosis and the functional diagnosis and if you can restore the anatomy early uh, it then allows you to at least have that in your back pocket that, that that area is done and you can at least progress more confidently and comfortably just to achieve your your KPIs and your you know, return to play markers a little bit more con- confidently. Whereas if you don't have the surgical approach, which is fine, guys do really well and increasingly seem to do well with a tailored rehab approach, then um, then you just need to be a little bit more careful through the early phase and then um, there's some principles that I think work quite nicely for that um, too. Let's talk about a management. Let's talk about um, your approaches to these injuries and how you might kickstart things from a rehabilitation point of view. I guess you need to consider the structural diagnosis and the functional diagnosis. So what about the structure makes these injuries more complex and then what is it we can do then from a rehab point of view that potentially gives an adaptation? So I mentioned... I mentioned a few things with the, the dual innervation. So what's the relevance of that or what exercises can we have that are potentially going to target the concept of, of neuromuscular inhibition and, um, and 
and high activation type exercises, what are the relevance of what's the relevance of the force vectors and idea of the short head working isometrically in tandem with the with the the long head, the idea of the, the two joints, the the long head across two joints, the short head across one. And what will that what adaptations are we going to seek across that from from our functional perspective? And then structurally again, what again if we have if we know that incomplete healing probably exists beyond uh, beyond six weeks, then we're going to need to apply a type of protective phase. Um, in my experience, that protective phase tends to vary between three weeks for the lower-grade injuries and six weeks for the higher-grade injuries. Uh, and in that period, I tend to be quite a bit more cautious in the loading and how, in terms of what I, what I do from an exercise perspective and how I subsequently progress running. Again, that period, when I say three to six for the period of, of offloading or of protective phase, again, you could you can just use time as your guideline if you want to be use real-time ultrasound to, to guide it. That's that's possible to otherwise just speculating a little bit. But then once you get through the protective phase, you've got this challenge that you've now avoided loading at longer length and you've avoided running. I mean, you've then got to ramp through rehab and get through the final, you know, the final phase. And, and all the challenges that come from being protective and um, you've now got to start stressing the, the T-junction maximally and having avoided running quickly for a period of time, you've now got a short and fascicle length and you've reduced load. We know sprinting is the highest load ex exercise you can do for that distal hamstring. You've now got to be cautious in how you ramp that again. Your acute chronic workload will be off. Your exposure to sprinting is down. Technical components of sprinting is down. The physical deconditioning is down. You've got to be conscious of all those things as you as you work through. In addition to probably try to um, probably try to figure out what the most appropriate return to play markers are, and also give consideration to why so why did the, the injury occur in the first place? Were there any you know um, components of the or any kind of characteristics of the athlete that may have made them likely to get injured in the first place? So. Beyond that, then you've just got to try and lean on, lean on. I tried to lean on the McDonald paper, and which was a game changer for the intramuscular tendon injuries and changed the results they got. So try and lean on some of the principles of that, and try and tailor them back then to the distal hamstring injury, and and allow us to come up with a bit of a framework um, based off that. So what what that means really is in the protective phase, I tend to go through a, a more gentler cadence than, than what you normally would for a, a typical hamstring injury. So not to stress the healing tissue and, and periodize accordingly. So there's, there's a lot of things you can do to load a, to load a tissue. So if, like, what's the best exercise? The best exercise is just based on the adaptation you're trying to get and the phase of what's appropriate for the athlete. Um, you can change the length. You can change the length of which you're loading them to the length of the muscle. Again, remembering that Obviously, the biceps femoris long head is biarticular, so whether you load hip flexion or extension is going to impact upon the load. Sorry, the length. We can apply different. Um, we can apply different levels of loads. We've got high load and low load exercises that may be appropriate at, at different points of the the rehab process. Uh, contraction types again. If one principle I tend to use is for. For the outer range exercises, I'll, I'll use isometric exercises, and the one for exercise will be high load for the distal hamstring or at long length. Initially, when I'm introducing them, I'll use isometric exercises. Or if I'm using an eccentric exercise, I'll tailor some of the other uh, components of the exercise. So I'll take some of the length off, some of the load off, maybe carry the exercise out over one joint. 
and then ultimately we're also going to add you know speed or rate of force development and you know anticipation and trying to be specific to the region and um, that we're trying to get the adaptation at so these these things will allow us to jump in somewhere along this scale and then you know if if i'm saying that we're trying to get you know high neural drive then you know very heavy isometric exercise would be important if we're trying to you know challenge the athletes towards you know exercise that we're preparing for swing phase what does that look like from an exercise perspective and how can we tailor that to the point they are um and we can try and be a bit specific along the way to prepare them for running but respect the respect their time their phase of healing respect the the journey that they're on and then kind of build exercise around that and then you need to be specific to the region too and um, so we know that the Nordic and the single leg hip extension are high biceps femoris exercises and and that's important because they're probably the ones who going to help us get the best adaptation more globally but uh, Hedgie's expanded a little bit on this with, with her HGMG work and they showed regional specific differences in the individual muscles and some of the knee dominant exercises like the, the straight knee bridge and the side leg curl get very high distal hamstring exercise um, distal hamstring activation so where do they fit in then and how do we periodize that so for the straight knee bridge if it's going to be very high distal load do we either bend it bend the knee a little bit if we're going to add heavy load or if we're going to use it maybe we can put an isometric there because we want to put some high outer range load but let's just not challenge it with a challenging um, a challenging contraction type or on the slide leg curl, we can make it double leg, take some of the range off. We can add some, you know, add a barbell to add load, but while managing the length or put the heels on a box to add some more length. And there's lots we can do to, to make this challenging across the spectrum while ultimately remembering what the outcomes are and what, what the most challenging exercise would look like. And again, that's the mechanism that's sprinting with rotation probably. So then we just build these things all together to, to what the end stage looks like. And again, with consideration to some of the things we know about the distal MTJ and some of the adaptations we're trying to get. And, and most of it, ultimately, all of this just ends up looking pretty much like a rounded program, um, a mix of hip and knee dominant and a mix of isometric and eccentric and a mix of fascia length and a mix of exercise preparing them for speed and things that try to make them move a bit technically better, get stronger around the hips. The, these are make the athlete generally a bit stronger. That's, that's what it's all going to more or less look like. Beautiful. I'm going to take us back a little bit there and break a couple of things down. Just in that early protection phase, what are we doing from a loading point of view there? I know you mentioned semi-symmetric. Like maybe give us an example of just one or two exercises that we're doing. Is that a prone hamstring curl? Is it the long lever sort of bridge isometric you mentioned? Or um, yeah, how's that actually looking? Yeah, I think the I think the long lever bridge, the kind of Alex Natera type exercise, can fit in there because because we can we can start that double leg. We can start we can start double leg post surgery, we can go single leg if it's just an acute injury. That should be appropriate based on we're just managing the contraction type by keeping it isometric that is unlikely to overly stress the injured the injured tissue, but allows us to get um to get tendon load, allows us to potentially change pain, allows us to put high force through it, allows us to get um if you think of the, the five work and the neuromuscular inhibition theory of hamstring recurrences. Um, then we can we can train that that's isometric contraction seem like a really useful type of loading that we we can use here but then if we're also considering that we want to add some eccentrics because we know the importance of eccentric strength for um well, for driving adaptation and um, 
eccentric strength as a risk factor, fascicle length as a risk factor, and the eccentric role, um, the importance of eccentric strength for terminal swing phase where where the distal MTJ is most challenged. So we need to make sure we've got exercises that are challenging that. And again, the likes of these, uh, the slide leg curls would be pretty useful there. Um, but just putting a you know a slide board curl can be pretty useful. Or again, I think we could apply the same principles to a to a prone curl. And I would do I would use the prone curl here. But again, just take some of the range off. So just knock the last fifteen degrees of the range, um, which should allow us to get reasonably heavy because we're we're challenging them in an area where they can produce a lot of force. You know between um, between inner and mid range on a let's say a hamstring curl. But we're just taking off the outer range where where we think that maybe it's not best to stress them eccentrically. So there's plenty we can do if we just change up a couple of a couple of principles. I also then would use I would then return the athlete to squatting or or the hex bar pretty quickly because again I don't think that the stress on the I don't think we should be too concerned with stress that's going to place in the hamstring and um, based on kind of those principles I've outlined and consider what the exercise actually is and what it's doing so we can maintain strength pretty easily by by doing that by doing those things it's just using a bit of um, the logic and are you bringing like hip movements in so when are we doing our hinge pattern yeah uh type of exercise in the early phase yeah so looking at hedgy's work the see it's relatively low load of the, the distal hamstring though relatively high load of the biceps femoris so there's to my mind there's no reason why we can't use um hip dominant exercises and i would use um, I would use hinging and you know simulating hip extension and and um, remaining deadlifts. They can come in early, and I think that's the flip side of this type of injury versus the proximal injuries. Is that we can is that theoretically you could hinge earlier, and that's my experience has been that's allowed us to put some to train the proximal end, but potentially logically offload the distal end. Running wise, uh, protective phase still talking. Let's call this like the six weeks. Let's say we're protective phase for the six weeks. Um, just for this example, are we happy to start running when they're feeling and looking good? Obviously, we might project from speed, but what do you do here? You work backwards from what's going to stress the tissue. And if we're saying that the high end speed stuff and the high end rotational uh, work is going to be the so high end change direction, high end sprinting is going to be the most challenging thing, then we can we can work back from there. And I think if we look at um, Shaki's work, we know that it's going above 80% is going to be the most challenging thing for hamstring. So keeping just below that, keeping below the 80%, so working 60 to 80% seems like a smart thing to do. Uh, once they're asymptomatic, I would begin I would begin running at that point. Relatively short, that allows them to keep a relatively shortened um, stride length. We're not putting high force through them on a swing phase. And again, I keep them running linear majority of that phase because it's relatively safe but we're prepping them at least once you get to that point at let's say six weeks or whatever point you've chosen as your your time driven line in the sand at least you're ready to know okay we've we've got a bank of running at 80 percent let's start moving quicker and you can move relatively seamlessly into the speed phase once you go beyond that point the the other thing to consider obviously is change direction I would use change of direction within that phase, but I would use it. I would use it judiciously and carefully. Uh, I would keep them probably at you know sixty percent intensity on change of direction at that point because it's um, it's 
likely to it's likely to stress the the tissue so i would build the two of those together if they're running at 80 percent they're changing direction at 60 percent if they're running if they're sprinting at 90 percent i would do change direction at 70 percent and and so on and so forth i would say a level behind on the curvilinear work um but also i would use an opportunity to, ch to train their change of direction because uh, you know is there a component of the trunk control that's that's um leaning learn, uh, lending them to be more at risk of over a not controlling their trunk as they change direction or as they as they do a curve run and lead to the uh, the distal hamstring overload. So once you recognise the mechanism and recognise what loads of hamstring, we can kind of work back and, and build in what that looks like. Now, let's say we're coming out of that protective phase, whether that's a three to six week phase. Uh, you mentioned we're sort of okay to do all the proximal control work, but we want to start loading the distal component of the, of the biceps. And can you break that down a little bit further into how we're going to do that? Uh, you mentioned the outer ranges. Are we starting to bring them into the outer ranges now with the prone curl and bridge or other, other bits? And how are, you, how are you doing that also, including some prescription for us on time or load? Again, there's a lot of things we want to consider in terms of the adaptation that we're trying to get and what that looks like in terms of the mechanism and, and what our KPIs are likely to be. And that defines what the, what the exercise selection is going to be. But we can then we can add things. So if, we, if, for instance, we know that that you know single leg outer range bridge is going to be a high activation, we can then add components related to the mechanism to that. So we can then add we can obviously add load, make that heavier, add time under tension, which I think is going to be really important. In I think the time under tension piece is going to be really important. We're trying to we're trying to in many cases regain bulk. We're trying to we're trying to you know activate. Um, activate motor units we're trying to dampen down the, the inhibition piece i think that's really important too and um, also there's a preponderance of type one muscle fibers in the distal hamstring so maybe there's an endurance component that's worth training so i think adding using that as a conditioning component is useful but also that's just one way we can use that exercise we can also you know add in switches and um, you know I, I would use a lot of you know four second iso hold within a within a hard switch um, and then again, adding speed to that, adding a rotational component to that, whereby by some kind of movement or doing with your upper body while it hold while maintaining the bridge, be that either catching a you know catching a med ball that I'm throwing at them from a, a different angle. So I've now got a an isometric anti-rotation component uh, at the at the trunk. Uh, really, on the I've I've learned a lot on the the likes of the curl the curl work. I think it turns out to be probably pretty important. The, we've got a, a mix of functional and non-functional exercises, but I think the non-functional or just traditional curl types of is actually you know, incredibly important. I think I think when we consider the if neuromuscular inhibition is going to be a really important piece of it, and we know from some of the other work that athletes who've had a previous hamstring injury are slower to adapt to stimuli, stimuli than um, than athletes who not to get you know, put them through a training block of Nordics and they don't get the adaptation that other guys will will get. So we need to be really deliberate and precise in how we prescribe our rehab. We need to make sure we train them to true outer range. And something that I've seen of gone through rehab blocks with guys completed and you know, carried out an isokinetic after rehab and seen they had the same outer range deficit they had before. So we need to make sure we train them the whole way to outer range, whether that's and that we train heavily to outer range. So whether that's with a dead stop, uh, you know, a dead stop at outer range, but that they don't, you're not giving them the opportunity to immediately, you know, cut the rep five, 10 degrees early and, and just change back to a concentric on, if you're doing the concentric eccentric curl. Also want to train true inner range and 
it's a conversation I had with Ender King last week, uh, who we spoke about earlier. He uses a mix of heavy and light, depending on what part of the range he's training. So if he's training the inner range component, he will then take the load off to allow them to actually get a stimulus there rather than, rather than just choosing a load that they can use at outer range and go heavy on. He'll take the load off and allow them to train inner range specifically. So respecting the fact that their you know, force production capacities are going to be different at different points in the range is really important too. And again, we can add different components to what they do on on that curl. So again, can we add can we add heavy switches to it? Can I maybe drop the drop the weight onto their? So again, if we imagine on a prone curl, I'll can drop the weight um, unanticipated onto their heel um, and make them catch it in ten degrees of knee flexion. And then building in a lot of mechanics type work. So again, things like the B drills and exercise that challenge swing phase. Um, I also really conscious of the outer range so true outer range is in hip flexion and knee extension so again bringing them right into 90 100 degrees of hip extension uh, sorry hip flexion and really straighten out the knee and again concentrics or eccentrics with a cable or, or manual resisted work out there i think is, is, is crucial to do as well and again can we put some element of trunk rotation or trunk component into all these exercises given what we know is is important. And the other kind of thing that's important to consider as well is is the the horizontal force uh, component, like JB Moore and Pascal Edward and um, Mendy Gucci's work and how horizontal force strategies change following injury and move more to a hamstring uh, strategy rather than a glute strategy or uh, or 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 so how do we manage that? Do we add, can we add glute max strengthening to it as well? Or can we take some of the challenge of a horizontal force production from the hamstring by adding, by ensuring that we're all over the ankle so that ankle stiffness and calf strength are there as well to make sure we're not robbing a vertical force by having to overproduce some horizontal force. So kind of a general overview of the athlete, I think is pretty important there as well. Um, so yeah, that would be most of the components that would would form that end stage. But again, preparing the athlete for for running quickly um, is really important. I think, as you mentioned there, the the hip and the force production and and the foot and ankle is obviously always would be a really important component as well. I'm I'm just going to I guess while we're on this podcast, really hone a couple of things around the hamstring um, target stuff we're doing. And I just want to uh, the final two things I want to break down a little bit is like what you're talking around, which with the end of the swing phase some exercises around that um, and how it's a challenging one and how we best get that and then um, maybe further elaborate on our rotation. So we talked a little bit about, um, you know, a, a bench, a hamstring bench hold with some rotation throws with the ball or what have you. And um, what are some other ways you might get that into our program? Yeah, so I think on the terminal swing phase and probably the rotation, there's, there's two components to it. One is giving the athlete the tolerance to be in that position and two is addressing why they're in that position so much. So from an exercise perspective, in terms of terminal swing phase, I think you, we one need to build strength there. So I think we need to apply a fair bit of force there as often as we can. There's some exercises that allow us to get really into, into that outer range, like an Aspen glider, uh, you know, where they're on the slide board and they're really pushing out into knee, into knee the hip flexion and the extension uh, and allowing them to get a hold out there is really important but I think you I think we can be less specific on that and just apply heavy load on the likes of our 
our curls um our curls and our, our cable work to to really put them out there i think is critical other things are going to be really important there as well like we can again if we load them in in hip flexion and knee extension on a on a straight leg deadlift i think there, i think there's components that's going to be pretty crucial as well and run specific isometrics but again just using hip flexion as a friend um on most of those things is going to be really important too the rotational end again so it's addressing why is the athlete over rotating as, as they run and overstriding and what what are potential um components that lead to that and again that takes it to end the king and franz bosch type um uh, uh, interventions and again uh, from a rotational perspective the the ben mcdonald paper they they address some um, isotonic and isometric anti-rotation exercises um like all i use i use variations of the pal off i use exercises where they're you know res resisting rotation while in hip flexion and while producing force from the hamstring but i think you can be be creative and again overhead um overhead work is really important to in terms of cueing control of the trunk and again giving consideration to how they change direction what they look like when they're moving quickly i think is going to be, be crit critically important there too when prescribing in the gym are we looking to sort of i guess resist rotation and work your anti-rotation component through the trunk and, and pelvis or are we actually trying to just rotate around an axis um, through the hamstring and hip. I primarily would use the approach of trying to resist, trying to resist rotation, but there's a, certainly room, or a certainly sense in using, and it's something I've done in, in using like med ball slam type work where we're actually rotating in, we're going into ipsilateral trunk rotation, we're producing force from that position because ultimately we're we're trying to train the athlete to be strong in positions they may find themselves in, but trying to train the athlete not to find themselves in position they might be strong in. So it's kind of giving consideration to both those things. And the other thing is you're trying to stay a step ahead. It's trying to stay a step ahead of the running, I think is, is critical as well. So that you're, you know, you're, you're training these high-end swing phase um, adaptations before they, before they start running above 80% so that you're ready. You're ready, you're ready when they're at 90% that you're confident they've done that. You're confident they can, they can, they can decelerate before you before you challenge them there, and that you've you've earned the right to do most of these things. I think is pretty important too. Do you feel kicking? So in these kicking sports, do we have a component of that yeah. in these injuries at all, either on the stance leg with the rotation, or maybe just the kicking side injury that the force that's required to do that in the range? Yeah, so I've seen a I've seen a T junction injury that's come from a kicking mechanism, which again fits fits a little bit of, of what we're thinking of the mechanism more often with the kicking type injuries it's probably semi 10 semi 10 but it does happen and again i don't think it overtly changes a huge amount of your um of your your rehab or your philosophy around that you're ultimately going to continue to load in hip flexion knee extension it's probably just the speed at which you're you're loading maybe there's a, a greater speed component of that there too but i don't think it would overly change too much nice and would there be any difference in our Return to play markers for these injuries versus our standard hamstrings from you find it all. Yeah, so I think uh, a well rehabbed hamstring is a well rehabbed hamstring regardless of the injury location because you're going to want to consider everything and you're going to want to make sure that you you're going to want to make sure that you've considered most factors that you're able to measure and make sure that they're pretty good before they return back in because even the in the Farasadad paper do only. Uh, breakdowns that he had where two of the guys went on to have grade two semi-membranosis injuries 
uh, in the year following the the T junction injury. So we need to make sure we're giving consideration to Hampton, giving consideration to the athletes. So in the you also need to consider if you're going to bring this athlete back when they possibly haven't got a complete you know anatomical or structural resolution from their injury you need to make sure that you're all over the functional end of it and what does that look like well again you're easy things to measure you know most simply on most of these are they are they clinically clear on the bed of course they're probably going to be because they're going to be clear quickly and then what strength marker is going to give you confidence and again for for most athletes it's going to be what are they like on a nordic and what are they like on a hip hinge in terms of giving us a quick knee and hip dominant um, overview but the challenge of the nordic is that it's going not going to take them to full weight outer range and the challenge of the deadlift is that it's slow and slow and heavy and hip dominant so we need to think more along the lines more along a broader spectrum than that so for mcdonald's injury what for mcdonald's paper what he suggests is depending on the severity of an injury you broaden the the amount of outcome measures you take i think that makes complete sense and for most of these injuries, I would use an isokinetic. Um, as I mentioned, probably what I've seen on these is they tend to struggle a little bit in outer range on return. That when, even despite feeling good and despite having a an otherwise uneventful rehab, a little persistent 10-15% deficit at outer range that really has to be challenged um, really specifically to, to finish that quite off. And again, that's just about specificity and precision in rehab, I think. So I think it's worth adding these in to give you the confidence that you've nailed the functional and physical end of the rehab. If you're still a touch concerned, you've not quite got the, the functional anatomical side to, to back you up. Great way to finish. Uh, Fergal, mate, that's uh, a really informative chat. Uh, really enjoyed that, actually. And um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have. Uh, is there, you mentioned a lot of people sort of at times reaching out to you. Are you happy for people to do that? And maybe be able to further continue to assist with some of your, your PhD work? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd, I'd love that. That was, again, that was my motivation behind putting out the piece in the first place. And there's a lot of this. I'd be curious as what people's thoughts around it are. Why Why are we seeing more of these injuries? And if people have a different way of managing them or are their indicators for going through is a little bit different to what's our, what, what mine are, then I'm, I'm really open to that. So um, it's just my name is the is my handle on all the social stuff, but LinkedIn is probably the, probably the handiest. Well, it's getting late in Ireland. It's uh, closer to 10pm. I'm sure you've got to get, yes. get up uh, going early. So we wish you all the best and you've got a wedding in 10 days. So we um, uh, have a great time there, mate, and all the best. Thanks very much. Thanks for asking me on, Nick. Champion. Thanks, mate.